0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your incredible goodness, your grace, your kindness, your love, and your generosity to us generously pour out your spirit upon us now as we come to your word, that we might not be those who hear and who walk away unchanged, but that we are those who respond through the power of your spirit with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are nearing the end, just two more weeks of this series on 2 Corinthians that we've been in. We're calling the series Power and Weakness because that's one of the great themes of this book. Paul is making an amazing case that power through weakness is not just at the heart of the gospel, but it is at the heart of the secret of life. That in the heart of the gospel, we see God's power, his amazing power, made manifest through the weakness and the suffering of Jesus, the Messiah. That God's power is most evident in and through suffering and weakness, And in the same way, in our lives, God's power is most evident in us, not through our feats of great strength, but in and through our weakness, power in weakness. And so we're looking, we've been looking at that week by week as we are broken pots who carry around the resurrection power of Jesus in us. And we're looking at right now, this little uh, fundraising letter that Paul uh, includes right in the heart of 2 Corinthians. Elizabeth preached on chapter 8, and I'm preaching in chapter 9 this week. And so let's hear God's word, uh, read by Kim and Nancy Talby.
1: Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: So there's this guy who goes to church with his family one day and afterwards they're driving home in their car and he's just complaining about everything. He said, you know, that the the music was too loud and the sermon was too long and the announcements were unclear and the Building was too hot, and the people were unfriendly, and he just goes on and on and on, complaining about virtually everything. And at some point then, his young, very observant son, who's sitting in the back seat, says, well, Dad, you've gotta admit that it wasn't a bad show for that dollar you paid. (laughs) (laughs) So, really, really dumb joke, but good commentary. Good commentary on confusion surrounding Christian giving, right? When Christians give their money, when we do this every week, when we invite you to give, what are we actually doing? Why are we doing it? What's the point? Are we paying for a good show or a bad show? Um, Are we just like keeping the lights on? Are we giving you an opportunity to assuage your guilt? Are you appeasing the pastor? What are we actually doing? Why do Christians give, or why should they give? We're looking at this second half of this amazing little fundraising letter that Paul includes right in the middle of 2 Corinthians. And Elizabeth talked last week, really, which is about the heart of Christian generosity, that the very heart and motivating power of all Christian giving is what? The gospel. The good news that the rich Christ became poor so that we poor sinners might become rich. That is the the heart, the motivating power of all Christian giving. Now, in the second half of his little letter, he tries to bring this appeal home by answering this question that I just raised. Why should Christians give? Why? What's the motivation? Here's what Paul says. You know why Christians should give? You know why we should do this? because it's so dang fun, (laughs) because it's amazing, because of all the things that you get out of it, because of all that you gain. Give because what you get. Give because it's so dang fun. In fact, verse 7, he says this, God loves a cheerful giver. And the word cheerful there is the Greek word hyleron, from which we get our word hilarious. Say God loves hilarious givers. God loves cheerful, happy, overjoyed givers. This is hilarious. This is ridiculous. This is so much fun. Look at all you get. Look at all you gain. You want to know why to give? Because of all you get. Now this is counterintuitive. We do not, we're not used to associating giving with, you know, we're used to associating with guilt and goading and groaning. So this is truly remarkable. And I want to just open up this passage a little bit for us this morning. What is it that Paul says that we get when we give? Why is it so much fun? Well, let's just look at a few things. First of all, Paul says, we give to get a lasting harvest. I got to tell you guys, this, my thinking has really changed and been challenged by this text um, over the last 10 to 15 years. 15 years ago, when I first became a pastor and I started preaching about giving and generosity, I used to say a lot that the only real reason for Christian giving is gratitude, that it should never be self-motivated. You should never give to get something out of it. It should just be a free response of joy and gratitude to God. Now, there's some truth to that, there really is, but one day I I preached a sermon like that here at 3rd, down in the sanctuary, and one of you came up to me after the service and said, with all due respect, Corey, you're wrong. (laughs) And I said, excuse me? (laughs) And she said, um, yeah, look, I know that what you're saying is fine, but it's just not true. Like, I give to get stuff all the time. I give because I enjoy it. I give because it frees me from the power that money has over my life. I give because I love seeing what it does. I, love be, I give because I want to be something that is part, way bigger than, than myself. I give to get all the time. So you're wrong. And I said, Well, okay. And I started to look at this text from chapter 9, and I realized that she's exactly true. It's not that Christians no longer give out of self-interest. It's that the gospel changes what the self is interested in. And there's a big difference there. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here in this text. Verse 6, he says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, kids, listen to me. He's using this analogy of a farmer. And I don't know if you've ever seen a farmer sow some seed, but no farmer is out there in the field throwing seed under the ground just for the sheer fun of it. Just because, you know what, I'm just doing this just because of the, the, the joyful gratitude I have in throwing seed into the ground. Is that why a farmer throws seed into the ground? No. Why does the farmer sow seed in the ground to get a harvest because the farmer is expecting a return. The farmer gives the seed into the ground, knowing and believing that more will come back. And Paul says, that's why we give, we give to get a massive harvest. See, sometimes people think that the Bible is down on money or that Christians believe that money is like bad or evil. That's not true, friends. Paul does say in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil, is a root. Actually, he says an a root of evil. But money itself, when stewarded wisely, and Jesus talks about this all the time, is actually an amazing tool for the work of God in the world. And so with this farming analogy, Paul is clearly saying that money is like a seed that we can use to actually produce a harvest. Verse nine, righteousness that endures forever. Verse 10, God will through your seed enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now, this is really crazy. And I think this is actually pretty different than maybe what I have heard at times about, about giving. You know, you've often heard it said, um, you can't take it with you. or There's no U-Hauls behind hearses, right? <laughs> heard something like that. I actually think that Paul is saying that that's wrong in a really crazy way. Paul is saying you can take it with you but just in a way that you never thought about before. He's pressing us pressing the Corinthians to take the really long view and I mean like the really 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 long view not like 5 years 10 years 50 years he's talking about like the eternal view only listen only one trillionth of your existence will be lived in this 1.0 version of creation. One day, the sun in the sky will burn out and God will replace it with something else and you will be there to see it. That's how lasting you are. And the question that Paul presents us with, are you using your money now in a way that will last beyond the sun? Are you investing right now in a way that will endure forever? Paul, Jesus says almost the exact same thing in Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in steal." See, Jesus is not against investing your money. He's against bad investing. He's against investing your, 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 your money in stuff that will rot and corrode it be taken by thieves. Wouldn't it be so awesome to have a financial advisor with a time machine? You know, like wouldn't it have been awesome 20 years ago to have a financial advisor tell you to invest in like Tesla or something today? Like wouldn't that be awesome? Guess what? That's what you've got. You've got a financial advisor who sees into the eternal future. And Jesus says to you, let me recommend this portfolio to you invest yourself in the kingdom of God. Most of the things we put our money into will burn up with the sun, but there are things that you can use your money in now that literally will last forever. People, relationships, work and labor for the kingdom, commitment to shalom and mercy and justice and love. We can invest our money in a way that bears spiritual dividends long after the sun has expired. And this is our opportunity that we have to invest in what is lasting. You know, you can actually budget your money, your own money. You can budget your money in a way that is investing in things that are enduring. We do this as a church when we plan our annual budget. Even the way that we have looked at what to prioritize in this building renovation. We know that this building will not last beyond the sun, but the things that we do in it will. And so we even have prioritized our spending in a way that is oriented towards the priorities of the kingdom to see the gospel preached and the community formed and disciples made and the poor empowered and relationships healed and forgiveness extended and reconciliation achieved and lives changed and the city restored and culture renewed and the nations reclaimed we can invest in a lasting harvest so paul and jesus are not saying your money doesn't matter they're saying use your money for things they're going to last He's not instructing us against ambition. He's saying, let your ambitions be around the kingdom. He's not against investment. He's against bad investments. Don't invest your money in stuff that will rot. Jim Elliott said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's just not inspirational. That's good investment advice right there. So we're sowing because we can't wait to see what the future harvest will bring. That's the first thing. The second thing Paul says is that we give to get abundant provision. He says, you're not just going to get something for all eternity. You're going to get something in the here and now, an experience of God's abundant, generous provision for you. So he says this in verse eight, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul's saying that one of the things that that giving does is it opens your eyes to see just how gracious and generous God is to you. There's a um, psychologist that I'm sure some of you are aware of named Brene Brown. And she often uh, talks about the myth of scarcity. You can go on YouTube and, and see a talk that she gave about that, the myth of scarcity. And what she talks about is that in our society, we all exist with this crippling myth that we feel we never have enough, we feel that we never are enough, and with all due respect to those of you who work in the ad industry, because you're awesome, much of the ad industry is committed to convincing you that you do not have enough, that you do not have what you need, and that indeed you yourself in your own identity are not fundamentally enough. And it doesn't actually matter how much you have, it doesn't matter how great you look, It doesn't matter, you know, really any of the things that you actually possess because there will always be someone who is wealthier. There will always be somebody who is more beautiful or handsomer. There will always be somebody who lives more extravagantly than you do. There will always be things that you feel like you need that you cannot afford. You will never feel like you have enough for retirement. You will never feel like you have enough for your children. We are all crippled by the myth that there is not enough. We live in the richest society in the world in history, and we live with the lie that there is not enough. And what Brene Brown says is that living and believing this myth makes for a pretty terrible life. It makes for an anxious life because you're worried all the time that you'll never have enough. It makes for a fearful life because you're always trying to protect yourself from danger and loss. And it makes for a really miserly life because you always feel like you need to preserve, what well, you have for yourself. And it makes for a lonely life because you're turned in upon yourself. And so what can we do? What can we do to this, with this, this disease of, of, of scarcity that we all are captive to? Well, here's Paul's prescription. Give. Give. Because giving opens you up to the freedom of the knowledge of God's abundance in a way that nothing else can He says, first, giving reminds you that everything you have belongs to God. In verse 10, he says, he who supplies seed to the sower in bread for food. When we give, we're reminded. This is why we do this liturgy every week that says, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own do we give. When we give, we're reminded that everything that we have belongs to God. The car you drive, the house you live in, the education that you paid for, the capacities that you have to earn the money to buy the things you have, the fact that you were born in the circumstances that you were born into and not 1,300 years ago in a shack in Tibet. All of these things are providential provisions of the superabundant God. Nothing belongs to you. Everything, as Paul says, what do you have that is not a gift? Those of you who are parents have had this experience where you're, you, know, you drive through the Chick-fil-A uh, drive-in to buy a chocolate milkshake for your kids. And they're sitting there drinking that milkshake is looking really good. You say, hey, give me a sip of that. No, it's mine. <laughs> are you being serious right now? <laughs> Seriously? Did you see me just pull out my credit card and give it to that lady and pay for that 36 seconds ago and you're saying this is yours? And see, we all got a little bit of that kid inside of us, y'all. We all got a little bit of that kid. We, got a, we, we need liturgies and practices and actions to remember that the sheik does not belong to me. <laughs> and when you let go of yourself, you're reminded that it wasn't yours to begin with and that it all came from God. We need to be reminded that God is the super abundant provider that gives us everything we need, and giving is an amazing way to do that. The second thing that he says Is in the second part of the verse, is that God will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. He's actually saying something pretty controversial here that giving results in God actually blessing you with even more in return. A lot of people think that Paul is actually drawing from a very famous passage in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, when God says, Come on, y'all, bring the whole storehouse, the whole tithe, the whole tithe, all of it into the storehouse. Put me to the test, prove me, and I will pour down into your life blessings you cannot recount. God is literally daring his people. Come on, man. I I dare you. I triple dog dare you. Do it. Give generously, give sacrificially, give radically, and I will show you that I will pour out into your life so much more than even you have given. Now, what does that mean? A lot of people have wrestled with that. What does that actually mean? Does that actually mean? Is Paul actually saying that when you give, that God is actually going to give you back more than you gave away? Now, maybe I have. I, I'm trying to be faithful to the text here. I've actually know of many stories where this has happened, um, but this is not. I want you to be clear on this. This is not like this typical prosperity gospel message where the gospel preacher says, send me your hundred bucks. God will triple what you gave so you can buy that flat screen. (laughs) That's not what Paul's doing here. What prosperity gospel preachers do not understand is that God very well may increase your financial prosperity as you give, but not so that you can have a flat screen, not so that you can live a more comfortable life, but so that you can give more away. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be more generous on every occasion. John Wesley, the famous Methodist preacher, when he was a young pastor in 1731, his income was 30 pounds a year. He lived on 28. He gave two pounds away. The next year, his income doubled. So he lived on 28 pounds. He gave 32 away. In about four years, he was getting pretty famous. And so that year, he made 120 pounds, So he lived in 28, and he gave 92 away. By the end of his life, he was the most well-known preacher in the world. He was making 1,400 pounds a year. He lived in 28. He gave the rest away. Now, that's a pretty amazing situation. And I'm not saying that, like, it's a one-to-one ratio with what you need to do. I'm just saying that here's the point is that God kept supplying him more and more and more. And instead of increasing his standard of living, he increased his standard of giving. There's a whole lot less that we need than we think. And God blesses us super abundantly so that we might be generous on every occasion. So here's the point. God blesses us when we give, it could be financial blessings, but more likely it will be even deeper. Liberation from fear. Freedom from anxiety, the deep, grateful awareness that God is our provider and gives us all that we need. God says, I want to pour out so many blessings into your hands, but I can't pour them into a clenched fist. Open your hands, let go of your stuff. Only then will you truly see how good and generous I really am. So we give to get a lasting harvest. We give to get an experience of God's abundant provision in the here and now. One last thing. Paul also says we give to get community the love of community remember the context Paul is urging the Corinthians to give to help their fellow struggling believers right in Jerusalem and when you give to them Paul says amazing communal stuff is going to happen and he has this wonderful description of what he says is going to happen in verses 12 through 14 he says you're going to supply the needs of God's people and then they're going to give many thanks to God and then many other people will rejoice and then the sharing will be increased, and then they will be inspired to start giving more, and then all these other people will start praying for you because they think you're so awesome. He says your giving is going to catalyze a overflow of deepened love and community. Giving can be a powerful catalyst for relationships. Paul saw it as money as a way to build a relationship between Jew and Gentile, between rich and poor. He saw that giving makes love expand, the circle of sharing widen, and deep connections grow. Giving is an act of powerful community building. I like the story, and I'm sure you've heard me tell it before, that my friend Kevin Ford tells, that when he was a little boy, um, he asked for a tree house for Christmas. And he ran down the stairs on Christmas morning, Looked out the window, no treehouse. And then his dad, who happens to be the famous evangelist, Leighton Ford, came up to him and said, hey, son, let's go outside, see your present. So he takes him outside, opens the garage door, walk into the driveway, there's a pile of lumber. <laughs> <laughs> and his heart just sinks, and his dad says, son, we're gonna build the treehouse together. And 50 years later, Kevin Ford still says, that is the best present I've ever received because it changed his relationship with his dad. And that's what happens when we build it together. That's what happens when we give of our time and our talent and our treasure together. Love happens, community happens, grace happens. Listen, we're not, don't think about giving the way that our secular world does. We're not isolated individuals, each carefully planning our charitable giving. We are a community bound together in the gospel, coming together to do the work of building God's kingdom together. Our collective giving connects us together and not only with each other, with fellow believers all over the city and all over the world. Henry Nowen says, giving is never about the money. It's always about relationship. We give as a catalyst for love. So let me sum up. Why should a Christian give? Because it's so dang fun because of all the benefits, because of all you get, because of all you gain. When you give, you gain a lasting eternal harvest. When you give, you get the experience of God's abundant provision. When you give, you get the taste of deep, authentic love and community. No wonder Paul says in verse 12 that our giving overflows into many thanksgiving to God, because ultimately that's what giving does. It leads to joy, happiness, gratitude, as we remember not just God's kindness to us in his provision, but in his ultimate giving to us in the gospel, in the person of Jesus, the rich Christ who became poor so that we poor might become rich. Listen, God loves a cheerful giver because God is the cheerful giver. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus gave his life in joy for us. And he wants us to share in his happiness. So I'll close with this wonderful quote from the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane. He says this, my dear Christians, If you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely. Christ is glorious and happy, and so shall you be. It's not your money I want, it's your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more happy to give than to receive. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are the happy, triune God and that you pour your generous love on the world and on us out of your infinite happy heart. Lord, free us from the myth. Free us from our miserly, self-centered lives that are turned in upon ourselves. Make us like you, that like Jesus, we would joyfully give and taste the happiness that is at the heart of the Godhead itself. We thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.